Matthew 18. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. We'll read verses 21 through 23. Hear now the reading of God's inspired word. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, for the forgiveness of sins, and for the joy and privilege we have of forgiving those who are indebted to us. We pray that you might make us mindful of your word, help us to hear the voice of our Savior, and to be willing by your grace working in us to freely forgive those indebted to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Matthew chapter 18 concerns in this latter portion of it the forgiveness of sins. You see the occasion here for the parable is the question of Peter. How oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? This is the context. Notice his question. Till seven times? Seems a lot, doesn't it? For many of us, forgiving once is difficult. But put in the theological context, this question is what we would possibly call legalistic or minimizing. Well, can I just have a list of how many times I've forgiven my brother, and once I reach seven, I'm done, right? That's it. It's over. Jesus answers in verse 22, I say not unto thee until seven times but until 70 times 7. Oh, so now I've got a list that goes to 490. No, that's not the point. What he's saying is the fullness of the fullness of the fullness multiplied together. 10 being the number of completion, 7 the number of fullness. Multiply those, you have 70. Multiply that by another fullness of 7, you have a lot. You have a limitless number, you might say. And because God abundantly pardons, Isaiah 55, verse 7, so ought we, with an uncounting spirit, with a freeness, with a fullness, in other words, 70 times 7. Therefore, he says in verse 23, because of this that I've just told you, therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto or made like unto. There is an adjective where something is like something else. The Greeks would take adjectives and turn them into verbs. To liken, to make like. That's what this is. There is a similar or comparative figure to be used concerning the kingdom of heaven. God's rule. God's reign. His kingdom resembles the free, the full, and the uncounting spirit of forgiveness. He says in this likeness or this parable, there was a certain king. Kings, of course, in the ancient days, were supreme and absolute rulers. This is a superior 
dealing with an inferior. That's very important for understanding the parable. The king is the supreme superior. The slave, what is he? Nothing. Now this king says he would take account in the parable. He would take up with someone. He would settle up the accounts, square things away, specifically the accounts of his servants, his inferiors. He required them to settle their accounts. How have you spent my money? I note then this doctrine. Parables are comparative only. They're not for creating dogmas. Therefore, comparing dogmas and duties previously known. Parables are comparative only. They're not meant to create new dogmas or new duties. Now you'll notice in this context, there is a plain statement of the duty in verses 21 and 22. The question is, how many times do I have to forgive? The answer is freely, fully, completely, and in an ongoing manner, keep on forgiving. That's the answer. Now the point of the parable is to take that plain statement of truth and to illustrate it by comparing it to something else. He's not going to create new doctrines, for example, that you can be justified and have your sins forgiven and still go to hell. That's not what he's teaching in this parable. He's not teaching new doctrines contrary to other plain truths that we know from Scripture. He's merely illustrating the point of the freeness and fullness of forgiveness, both as we have received it and both as we give it. Let us read wisely the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ and the other parables of Scripture. Let us not corrupt parables into allegories or apocalypses, but rather let us prudently apply the analogies to our faith and our practice. So what's the analogy? This slave owned, owed him, his master or king, 10,000 talents. Now let me give you a few figures here to put this in perspective. One talent, not 10,000, just one, is estimated to be somewhere around 6,150 pounds of silver. Not ounces, a pound. An ounce of silver is a full silver dollar. That's an ounce, or approximately an ounce. Now if you took that one and you said, well, give me 6,150 of those full ounces of silver, you'd have one talent. Now, if you would like to go and buy that 6,150 pounds of silver, do you know how much that is in our worthless American money? 2,132,800 dollars. You got that kind of money sitting around? For one talent, do you have it? Do I have it? No, we don't. Maybe there are people we've known in our lifetime who might, oh yeah, sneeze that out. That's fine. Now, multiply that by 10,000, because this is 10,000 talents he's indebted to him. How much would you have? 21,327,687,500 dollars. What a servant to have, wasting all that money. $21.3 billion wasted down the hole. 
Now, what does this illustrate for us? How much do you conceive of your debt to God? How much would you say on a scale of 1 to 21.3 billion? How much is your debt to God? Because you know what our natural tendency is, right? I know I don't, I don't always live perfectly, but I'm a pretty good person. You know, I do good things. I uh, fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm not like this tax collector, this publican over here. That's the pharisaical spirit. We tend to look upon our sins and think, oh, they're tiny. Then we look at our neighbor's sins and say, whoa, how big that sin is over there. This is how God sees our sin. He sees it as a debt that is so large that you will never pay it off. You're a slave. What are you going to do? What are you going to earn? You going to earn that much money? No. You know what they would pay a slave? About a denarius a day. And we'll look at that in a little bit. You get one silver coin a day and it's not even a full ounce. Okay? Now imagine 6,150 pounds of silver is one talent. 10,000 times times that. How are you going to pay that off? You can't. You cannot earn. You cannot work. You have no worth to pay the debt. That's what is being illustrated. Verse 25, the impossibility of his condition. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Note, he could not pay the debt. It was impossible. He didn't have enough to pay. This illustrates again man's inability Man doesn't have some kind of first step he can take toward God and then God steps toward him and forgives his sins. No, that's not how this works. Man is a corpse lying at the bottom of the ocean, rotting in his flesh like Lazarus in the tomb, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. That's what the gospel's like. Dead in trespasses and sins with a debt so overwhelming, you will never pay it off in a billion lifetimes. You won't pay this debt off. He had not to pay. Man is helpless to pay his debt. And we see this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19. Does Paul say there are some who seek God? There are some who do good? Maybe a handful of good people? None, he says. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all together become, what? Unprofitable. You can't pay back the debt. I can't pay back the debt. We have not where to pay. And therefore, Romans 3.20 says, By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Not even one sinner will be justified in God's sight by the deeds of the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, what is God's right over a sinner? What does God have the right to do to sinners who are indebted to him, who can't pay their debts? Notice, his Lord commanded him. It's not optional. It's mandatory. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had 
and payment to be made. Now, he's not going to get much out of the bargain, but it's something. Sell him as a slave, maybe. You get a couple years' wages for the price of a slave. That's something. Better than nothing. He has the right to sell him. The wages of sin is death. It brings bondage, and it causes God to have a right over us to destroy us for this debt that we owe. There is no chink to be made in this debt, even by selling us and destroying us. The debt is still there. In other words, hell goes on forever because the debt is never paid. The debt is still outstanding. In fact, men in hell continue to sin and continue to aggregate their debt. They don't erase their debt, contrary to the fiction of the Antichrist Wormwood. Notice there verse 26. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Here is the proper posture of a sinner. Coming before God, as this servant comes before his king, falling down, not even as an upright man, worshipping him. Now this word worship is a very interesting word. It's proskuneo. We get the word canine from the last part of that. Pros is to or toward. Act toward someone as a dog acts. What do dogs do? They get down, they lick your hand. Why? Because they reverence you as their master, right? So they're going to worship you. They're going to proskuneo. They're going to bow before you and they're going to lick your hand and they're going to do whatever you say and you say go and they go and you say come and they come. That's the idea of worship. So he worships acts like a dog, goes down and humbles himself and says that there is this request that he urgently, immediately be long-suffering toward me. That's the literal translation. Have patience with me. Now he says, and I will pay thee all. Do you think that's actually the case? Is he going to pay $23 billion? Could he actually do that? He couldn't. But notice, the Lord of that servant, verse 27, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Now the word moved with compassion is a single verb in the Greek. It means to have your bowels move towards someone. For the ancient world, the heart did the thinking and the choosing, and the bowels did the compassion and the movement of tenderness toward other people. So you had the heart and the bowels in the Bible and through the ancient world. This is very common. The Lord of that servant had pity. He had mercy. He had compassion. The bowels of the king were moved seeing this pitiful sight. This slave owes me 23 or excuse me 21.3 billion dollars and he thinks He's going to pay me back if I show him a little mercy. He's moved with compassion for him, seeing his misery and his suffering and his debt. So he loosed him. That is the idea of binding and loosing. You can hold him in the prison or release him from the prison. He's going to release him. And he forgave him the debt. Now this word forgive can even be translated to divorce. It means to send back, to send away, Here's the sin debt that you owe. 
I send it away. Maybe you could say as far as the east is from the west. He sends it away. He forgives it. In fact, this is the word in Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts that we are taught to pray. Then what's the sequel? Verse 28. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. The very same servant. He goes not to his inferior. He goes to his equal. Here's the king. Here's his slave. Here's the slave. Here's his fellow slave. They're equals. He has no superiority over him. But the king who has the superiority and has the massive debt owed to him, what did he do? He was moved with compassion. He freely forgave him all of his sins. Now he goes to his fellow slave, his equal, with no such aggravation. And how much was he owed? An hundred pence. Now, in Matthew 20, we find that one penny, or one of these little silver coins, was about a day's wages. So here you have it. A hundred days work. How much does a man make in a year? Let's say a man makes, oh, I don't know, $30,000 in a year as a day laborer. This is a slave. So if he's going to owe him this much, it's about 100 days wages. Maybe let's say ten dollars to $15,000. Okay? He owes him ten dollars to $15,000, somewhere in there. How much did he owe the king? Was it thousands? No. Hundreds of thousands? No. Millions? Tens of millions? Hundreds of millions? Billions? $21.3 billion was the debt. Not much to have ten or 15000 owed. Not much at all. But how does he respond to the debt that is owed to him? He lays hands on him and took him by the throat. Choking him. Pay me what you owe me. Verse 29. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Now, here's something very interesting. Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard that somewhere? I'm trying to think. Where have we heard that phrase? Oh, right. Remember in verse 26, when he fell down before the king, what did he say? Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. You see the difference? I don't. Pretty similar, isn't it? About the same thing. In fact, there are the identical words in Greek with the order flipped in a couple of them. But it's the same exact words. Exactly identical words. What does this forgiven servant say? Verse 30. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. He was unwilling, literally. He would not. Were his bowels moved with compassion on his fellow slave? No. His will 
was unaltered. His self-will, his self-righteousness said, no, I'm not going to forgive you. Even though you say the same thing to me that I said to the king, and even though my $21.3 billion was erased, look, pal, you owe me 10000 bucks. pay up or you're going to jail. You see the disparity here? You see the difference between an equal to an equal versus a superior to his inferior? You see the massive amount of debt? What does this all tell us? How great are our sins against God? When we think of the really evil things we've done in our lives, what do we tend to think about? Well, there was that time I stole from my mom, and there's that time I punched my brother and I never told anybody about it. What are we thinking? Second table of the law. Love thy neighbor as thyself. I violated the second table of the law. What does God say is the big deal? Well, how did you offend against the king? What is the debt that you owe to your sovereign Lord, to God himself? The first table of the law. No other gods. No false worship. Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. How well do we think we've kept those? Oh, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I pretty much did that from my youth. No, we didn't. Here's how God sees it. You owe me $21.3 billion and you're going around grumbling about a $10,000 debt. That's how he sees it. That's how God looks upon our petty squabbles and are looking merely on the horizontal as what we've done against men when God says, what hast thou done to me? This unforgiving servant, forgiven much but loves little, he went and cast his fellow slave into prison till he should pay the debt. The inverse of the king. The inverse, the exact opposite of his master. And notice the fellow servants, verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Remember what I said about saying you're sorry? Here it is. They were sorry, weren't they? That's not how you repent. You don't say you're sorry. They were just moved with sadness over this whole thing. That's what it means. They were sorry. So they come and they tell the master, the Lord, of all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, Oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Should not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee. Notice here, thou wicked servant, he calls him. This is the vocative case where you call directly upon someone. We find it scattered throughout the New Testament. He directly addresses the slave himself and he doesn't call him his pal. He doesn't call him his buddy. He calls him a wicked slave. I forgave thee all that debt. Remember, those 10,000 talents of silver, one talent being 6,150 pounds of silver, those $21.3 billion of worthless U.S. dollars, I forgave you all of that. Because thou desiredst me, you came to me with entreaties, you pled your cause, you asked me to have compassion, 
Shouldest not thou also have had compassion? Now this is a rhetorical question. It is not intended for him to think about it. Well, I'm not sure. Should I really have had compassion or not? I don't know. It's kind of a hard question. No, it's answered. The question itself answers itself. Shouldest thou not means, yes, you should have. You should have had compassion on your fellow servant. You should have logically said, I have been shown so much mercy by the king. What is this between me and my fellow slaves? Nothing. He can't pay me back. I couldn't pay him back. He was moved with compassion on me. I should be moved with compassion on him. Yes, logically, you should have been moved to show mercy, forgiveness, grace, and compassion even on thy fellow servant as I had pity on thee. He's thy equal. I am thy superior. Should the act of grace and mercy on the behalf of your superior toward you with an infinitely larger debt, should it not have moved thee to show compassion to him? Yes. Yes, it should have. And notice verse 34. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts Forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Verse 34, his Lord was wroth. Literally, this means to be moved by an external force to wrath, to be provoked, to be pushed, to be caused by an outside force passively so that you are made angry by the stench of this wickedness. He was provoked to it by his wicked slave. And what did he do? He delivered this wicked slave to the tormentors. Now the place of torments in the Bible, in plain language, is called Gehenna. It's the massive garbage dump of the universe where all the rot and the trash goes. And Jesus refers to it again and again and again. We call it hell. It's a place of torments where men who are graceless and merciless, why? Because they never really received the grace of God. They never really received the forgiveness of their sins. They merely profess to believe it, but how do you know if they actually believed it? Well, if you had $21.3 billion of debt and you had been forgiven that debt, what do you think that would make you do? Go out and choke your fellow servant for the $10,000 you owe me, cough it up, give it to me, I need it now. Or would you say, well, look how much I've been forgiven. It's no, it's no question in my mind. I who have been loved much by God ought to love my neighbor. I who have been forgiven much must love much. Did this wicked slave ever grasp the magnitude of his evil? Well, he pretended to. He just wanted mercy. Please show me mercy. I'll pay you later. But did he actually understand the gravity of what he had done? 
Because if he understood the gravity of what he had done, could he lightly set aside the mercy that was shown to him? In such a callous way, as if it were nothing, as if it were trash and garbage to be set aside. Well, it's in my favor now that this is out of my favor to forgive now. Now I'm going to be real exact and really just. This is not the heart of grace. So he delivers him to the tormentors. And so our Lord concludes the parable with a practical lesson. What's the take home, Jesus? So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Now the marvel of man's depravity is that he will make passages like this into a covenant of works, by which if I forgive my neighbor, my sins will then consequently be forgiven by God. And so what are they saying? Well, I can't actually pay my debt. And the way that I pay my debt is that I forgive my neighbor. You see how ludicrous that is. Forgiving your neighbor is not a means by which you obtain the grace of God. It's not a means by which you gain heaven. It's not a means by which you pay the debt of your sins, Jesus doing 99% and you contributing your filthy rags as the 1%. No, that is not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. If you were in the parable and you understood the magnitude of your disability, the greatness of your sin and depravity against God himself, and how you must be freely forgiven all your sins, what must you logically do toward your neighbor? Forgive. You must. Against your brother. Christ turns back upon us the truth and duty of forgiveness without counting, without the self-seeking, oh, I reached seven, done, through forgiving you, this is over. The minuscule sins of men versus our massive sins against God. He says that we must forgive from our hearts. Now, sometimes children fight and they're told, go ask your sister to forgive you. Will you please forgive me? <sighs> yeah. Is that from the heart? From the inner man? Is that understanding your own wickedness and your own depravity and the debt against God and the forgiveness of your sin? No, that's saying, I will go through the motion of forgiving you because I know I'm supposed to, but I don't want to forgive you because my debts are so important that you owe me. But my debts that I owe God, man, no big deal. You know, God's very merciful. Let's forget about that. No, we can't forget about that. We cannot overlook that. No mere lip service. It must be an inner conviction of the mind, an act of the will by which you grasp the necessity of pardoning your fellow slaves out of the sense of God's grace to you. From your hearts, not merely with your lips, and from your hearts you must forgive everyone his brother their trespasses.
Here Christ brings it, not in parabolic form, but in the literal form. You have brethren. You have brothers in the Lord. They're like your fellow slaves in the parable. God is like the king. The servant who counts how many times do I have to forgive is like that wicked slave. Eh, you know, you reached a maximum. 10,000 is more than seven, okay? So you owe me and you're going to pay or I'm going to throw you in prison. No. We must forgive from our hearts. The doctrine then from this passage, total depravity, man's inability, justification by faith alone, and the free grace of God have a very practical import on our lives. These doctrines of total depravity, of God's free grace, of justification by faith alone without works, you know that's what it's illustrating, right? How is he ever going to pay off his debt? He can't. He's a slave. What can he do to earn $21.3 billion and he can earn, you know, a penny a day? <laughs> He's never going to pay back the debt. He cannot pay back the debt. What has to happen then? God must freely pardon all our sins because there's none righteous, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. And therefore, by the works of the law, shall no flesh be justified before God. What are we left with? The redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way the debt can be erased. The Father, the King, sent His only begotten Son so that those who were indebted to God could have all their debts forgiven freely from the heart of God, sending His Son to make propitiation for our sins. And how do you receive that gift? By forgiving your neighbor? No. Freely through His grace, by believing in Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, all your sins washed away in his blood. These doctrines have a very practical import. Let them have their perfect work. Let us then in exhortation grasp the severity of our case. Let us see the greatness of our debt to God. Let us beg him as the slave did on bended knee, to forgive us our debts, to be moved with bowels of compassion, to blot out all our sins for our wretched estate. Then let us be moved toward our brethren with a like compassion to the compassion of the Father, a readiness to forgive, to release, to send back, to part and say the debt is done, it is forgiven, and freely from our hearts to forgive those indebted to us. Our, our question 105 of our Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what do we pray for in the fifth petition? Here's the answer. In the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, we pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the rather encouraged to ask, because by His grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. Thus far the explanation of Matthew 18. Let's pray.